come to the end of Mark chapter 12 here, and we find two stories, two teachings from Jesus. And this is his last public instruction that he'll give and that Mark records. In fact, in just a couple of days, Jesus will be beaten. He will be crucified on a cross. He will die for human sins. And in the greatest event that the world has ever known, the greatest miracle, he will be raised to new life just 48 hours later. And so in this important text, there are two different but related scenes. The common feature, really the common theme between these two stories is that Jesus teaches us a lesson. In fact, he teaches us two lessons about life in the kingdom of God, about how his followers, his disciples, are in fact to conduct themselves, how we are to live as Christians. And the way that Mark records these two stories is very, very purposeful. We're actually meant to see the difference. We're, we're meant to see the contrast between the two. There are two different sets of people, two vastly different categories of people, two different endings, two different outcomes. The scribes, well, they get it wrong. They're religious show-offs. They're religious fakes, spiritual frauds. They're deserving of condemnation. The poor widow, she's sincere, unpretentious. She's deserving of commendation. So clearly, church, there is a way to get life wrong. There's a way to get worship wrong and end up in a far worse place. And there is a way to get it very right so that God would, in fact, move in your life and bless you and in blessing you then bless others. Wouldn't you want to know the difference? Wouldn't, wouldn't you want to know the, the differences and the contrast? Wouldn't it be a good thing today if, as followers of Jesus, we could know, on the one hand, what not to do, and on the other hand, what to do, how we are to conduct ourselves as Christians? I hope you do want to know, and if you do, well, then we have hope here because Jesus addresses this uh, as we see the differences here between these two categories of people. I just want to draw out two main lessons from this really important text this morning. Two main lessons. Here's lesson number one. Lesson number one is how to be less godly than you think. How to be less godly than you think. How to be less spiritually inspiring or remarkable than you probably think you are and then maybe those around you think you are. Verses 38 through 40. And in his teaching, he, that's Jesus, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. And they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. It turns out, brothers and sisters, it's actually not too hard. It's not difficult at all to seem very godly, but in fact, to be very far from God. Jesus says, look to the scribes. They actually tell us how to do that. And in this text, there are actually two ways to be less godly than you seem that's incorporated in two warnings. Here's the first warning. Beware of living for and loving the applause of others. Beware of living for and loving the applause and the attention and the accolades and the acclaim of others. 
Verse 38, the scribes loved to walk around in these long robes. They were long white robes for everybody to see them so that they were noticed by everybody. These were usually floor-length robes, glimmering white, and they'd just be hemmed in the bottom. The scribes stood out from the common folk because the common people were usually poor. And because they were poor, they, their clothing was just kind of a patchwork of material from this garment and material from that and just sewn together. And so it just looked shabby. You could see that they didn't have a lot of money for something as shiny as this long white robe. Now, it's not a sin to wear a robe in church. In fact, there's denominations, in fact, that, that do that. The, the, the problem here is that the scribes loved and believed what these white robes said about them. So people would see them and in their long flowing robes and they'd say, right there, there's a scribe. That's an influential person. That's a power broker. That's someone you want to get to know. That's someone who can make things happen. So whenever a scribe would walk along the robe and, or the road in their robes, it was expected that anybody who passed them by, that they would rise to their feet and they'd say, master or teacher. Now again, it's, it's one thing to show respect, like giving up your seat on a full bus for a pregnant lady or uh, for maybe an elderly man. But it's quite another thing to heap praise and honor on someone who thinks that they deserve it because of their title or because of the clothes that they're wearing. These religious experts, these teachers, they loved the attention and the accolades that they were given, oftentimes in these very, very public settings. They, in fact, lived for it. According to verse 39, they, they also lived for and loved having the best seats in the house. So when the rich and powerful threw a banquet, the seat of honor was always to the right or the left of the host. Well, the scribes got those seats, and they got those seats even above their parents and even above the aged and the elderly. And when these scribes entered the synagogue and gathered for worship, everybody knew where the scribes sat. They sat front and center, facing the congregation. Now that might seem a little odd. Why would they face the congregation? Well, simply because that way everybody could see them. They were noticed. Everybody could look at their outward, at least, piety and and, and seem like they're, those are the spiritual people. Now, in our culture, this is, I think, somewhat different. The place of honor and prestige, like in a local church like ours, that's, that's usually not in the front row here. Typically, and we've got some happy exceptions here, but typically, the, the front row in a church is reserved for the folks that come in late. Right? Like, I don't think any of you wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I can't wait to sit in the very front row this morning. And I'm sure that none of you came here this morning thinking, not only do I want to sit in the front row, but today I'm going to turn my chair and face the congregation. <laughs> now, we'd have to really think through that as elders. And some of you are thinking, oh, we have got to get to church on time. That is the application. That's a good application. But the scribes live for, they love the applause and the attention of others. This kind of me first, look at me, draw attention to yourself attitude can be especially pernicious in a local church. You can look like a spiritual success. In fact, people can 
see you as a spiritual success. And they might say all kinds of really nice things about you. What a great servant she is. Nobody's as generous as this guy. Boy, that guy's a gifted teacher. This is the most sacrificial person I know. You can hear all these things, people saying all these things, and all it does is eventually just puff you up and feed your ego so that you actually start to believe that you are really something, when the truth is none of us actually deserve, none of us actually deserve to be praised, and every one of us is absolutely expendable. Brothers and sisters, if the Lord is blessing our church with influence and with growth, the worst thing that we can do is to say that we deserve it. Probably the next worst thing that we can do is out of that sense of entitlement to feel that we no longer need to be dependent on God anymore. We no longer need to obey him as we once did. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 tells us how we are to conduct ourselves, how we are to think as followers of Jesus, as we live life in his kingdom. It's a different kind of kingdom. It has different norms. It has different values than, than, what, than the air that we breathe, and we know that. And so from Philippians 2, following the example of Jesus in humility, what do we do? We count others as better than ourselves. That means you are more important than me. You're more significant. So there's no room for boasting in ourselves or just even drawing attention to ourselves. Is there anything better than, than a person, a man or woman, who is self-forgetful, doesn't need to be the center of attention? I mean, you meet a person like that, there, there's something very compelling about that kind of person, isn't there? You, you kind of just want to be friends with them because of that. Is there anything better in a local church than a man or woman, boy and girl, who is self-forgetful and they're not always reading the room, which we can all do very naturally? That person's important. There's the influencer. Need to be friends. I'm hoping that person is friends with me. As they rise, we'll rise. Self-forgetful. This kind of me-first attitude is really foreign to Christianity and to life in God's kingdom, the truth is the only person who deserves a place of honor and praise is Jesus. And instead of Jesus having a prominent place in the temple, instead of reading how Jesus was lauded and applauded and, well, worshiped by all because he actually deserved this, you know what Jesus is going to do? He's gonna die on a hill on a cross. And why would he do that? out of his great love for you, out of his great kindness and compassion and mercy for you. So this is the first way to be less godly than you think, live for and love the applause of others. Here's the second way, and this is the second warning. Beware of climbing the greasy pole. I know you're thinking, what in the world are you talking about? Verse 40 Beware of climbing the greasy pole. The scribes devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. For the scribes to get ahead, they needed to push others down. 
In order to climb up, they didn't care who they pushed aside. They both greased the pole, and then they climbed it. And in order to keep climbing, well, they needed to step on or over other people. And in this case, it was the widows among them. Now, commentators are, are really confused because they're not exactly sure what this phrase, devour widows' houses, actually refers to. I think the most simplest explanation is is that these scribes took full advantage of, and I think in some cases, probably to the point of abused, the most vulnerable and the most susceptible and the most defenseless among them. Widows. Perhaps they exploited the estate of widows. Maybe they just laid a serious guilt trip on them to extort money out of them, thinking that they could be very gullible. But either way, their conduct was reprehensible, pathetic, just downright evil. A good friend of mine was sharing this this a couple years ago. He was telling me about his grandmother. She's probably 97, 98 now. But a few years ago, she simply answered the phone. And a very polite, sincere-sounding man on the other end of the phone convinced her that there was a great need and that he was part of a legitimate Christian organization, and long story short, she got scammed out of $25,000. That's just evil. Preying on the most vulnerable and naive. That's what these scribes are doing. And, And they worked the plan, and in fact, they thought through it enough that the way that they would cover up this evil was that they would, in public, pray Very pious-sounding, long prayers that would attract the attention of others and so that as they prayed and others would hear them pray, the the only conclusion would be, well, they must be godly. They they must be very religious people. Now, of course, the, the prayers were all for show and what a show it was. These scribes would drone on and on and I don't know at what point, maybe the people stopped listening. I know you all listen to every last word of every last prayer ever offered. So this may not be our challenge this morning, but it was just nothing more than a religious spectacle. Spiritual circus act. Religious fakes, spiritual frauds, church show-offs. These scribes looked impressive. What's not to like about a long flowing white robe? They sounded pious, such long prayers that attracted the attention of others, but their hearts were far from God. They just just kept climbing the greasy pole. So beware of those who climb the greasy pole, and beware of those who also want you to climb it with them. Jesus doesn't take climbing the greasy pole lightly. When this happens in his church, Jesus, in fact, gets angry. He doesn't applaud religious people who are less godly than they think or than they want to admit. Notice who he's angry with here. Jesus is not angry with the guy who's struggling and getting drunk every other night, and then he just makes his way into church every now and again. In this text, Jesus is not condemning LGBTQ activists here. Jesus says this about people like you and me. People that show up to church consistently, who read the scriptures, who even teach 
the Scriptures to others. There's nothing that Jesus hates more than religious fakes and frauds and hypocrites. And that's a problem for us, every last one of us, because at some level, that is us. We're, we're all hypocrites or hypocritical in some manner. Maybe it's just the degree, but by virtue of our sins from Genesis 3 on, we are duplicitous, and we don't get it right all the time, and we say one thing, we do another. That's the human condition. Cries out for a savior, doesn't it? Cries out for one who wasn't a hypocrite. In fact, the only one who can save us is the only one who never was a hypocrite, who was completely pure. He meant what he said. He said what he meant 100% of the time. Cries out for a savior. I want to be clear here. Jesus, and certainly when I talk about this, I'm, I'm not talking here about the person who does the right thing even though they don't feel like it. Okay, that's, that's not hypocrisy. That's called maturity. That's called growing up. That's called becoming an adult. I don't really want to go to work today. Well, you got to go. I don't really feel like going to work today. Well, you have a family to support. You don't really get that choice. Suck it up, buttercup. Or, I don't really feel like going to church today. I'm reminded of a son who said that to his mother. Mom, I don't really feel like going to church today. And she said, son, well, you have to go. And the son said, well, I don't want to go. And the mother said, well, it doesn't matter. You still have to go get in the car. And the son kept protesting and said, mom, why? Why do I have to go to church today? And the mother said, son, because you're the pastor. <laughs> and it's your job. And a lot of people are counting on you. <laughs> the scribes are not really interested in doing the right thing. They're interested in trying to be someone that they are not. They're really trying to look godly when they're far from godly. And Jesus says, that won't go unpunished. That won't go unpunished. As leaders who are entrusted to shepherd God's people, Jesus says they will receive an even greater judgment and greater punishment. Why? Because they know better. Because they know the Torah. Because they've been taught the truths. Because they've memorized whole, whole portions of that. Because they're teaching others. W what an incredible contrast, brothers and sisters, between these scribes and Jesus. These greasy leaders stepped all over people to make themselves look good. Do you know what Jesus did? The exact opposite. He was stepped on even more, crucified on a cross so that greasy sinners like us could be declared good, righteous, altogether pure and holy. And he did that because he loves you, because he loves his people, willingly. Humility says, I'm not so spiritual that I couldn't be in that first category of the scribes. That I might be less godly than other people think and that even than I am. And that's the first lesson 
how to be less godly than you think. Here's the second lesson. The widow also teaches us a very, very important lesson, and here's what it is. Lesson number two, how to be more godly than you seem. How to be more godly than you seem. How to be spiritually, genuinely more godly than maybe other people even notice. Verses 41 through 44, I'll read it. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Church, nothing, nothing gets by Jesus. He sees everything, every last detail, every, even the smallest act, the, the tiniest of movements. The, do, do you know that Jesus knows exactly every last detail of your life here today? Has, he's not ignoring you. Nothing escapes his vision. He sees the smallest thing. So this all takes place, the second scene in the court of women. And so in that area of the temple, you would really find 13 different, let's call them collection boxes, that people would come in and place their offerings. So if you can imagine walking into here, and uh, they'd basically be hung on the wall. They were, they were actually called shofar trumpets. Shofar was the, it's the Hebrew word for trumpet. And so there'd be 13 different things look like trumpets hanging on the wall. And so when you walked in, depending on your offering, you would go maybe here or here, and you would place your offering uh, in those areas. Had a narrow view at top, and then it'd open up into the bottom. Jesus is just watching all of this happen. He's watching people come forward and give their offerings. And so if you were offering a bird, maybe you'd go right here. If you were offering some gold, you'd go here. If you were putting some coins in, you might go over here. Jesus sees all this. And what Jesus sees, and he notices that many wealthy people, many rich people are putting in some very large and impressive offerings. And so the sense here is that it took them quite a long time, that they would have to stand at their shofar chest for a fairly long time to put in all of their offerings because it was so big. So you can imagine if somebody had several large bags of coins, and so they might come over here and start dumping it in and make a lot of noise, wouldn't it? People would hear that, and people would notice exactly who's dumping in a large number of coins, and it would attract attention. People would see that. Now, Jesus is not condemning the rich for, for giving large offerings, a lot of money. What he is saying is that they're, they're giving out of their Abundance. I don't know why he would, but if for some reason Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, is watching online this morning, hello, Mr. Bezos, you are welcome to give to GCF Valley. And let's just say that he does that, takes me up on this offer, like, who's this guy? And so he cuts a check for $250,000. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of shekels. I don't think any of us here could write a check for $250,000 and just 
leave without immense pain and crying. But for Jeff Bezos, his net worth, according to this last week, was $144 billion. That's also a lot of shekels. So yeah, we'll, we'll take, we'll accept, we'll receive his $250,000 donation. We will praise God for that. We will redeem it. We will use it for good and the glory of God. But that's not really much of a sacrifice for him, is it? Because in the time that it took me to say he's worth $144 billion, you know what just happened? A a whole lot of people just bought a whole lot of things from Amazon and he probably just made up that $250,000. Not a big sacrifice. It's a big offering, but it really didn't cost him that much. And so our tendency, and and look, if if we got a check like that, I mean, honestly, our first tendency would say, wow, what a generous gift, what an amazing... That person has got to be godly. But we don't see as Jesus sees. Jesus sees this poor widow, verse 42. Jesus sees her because she was likely alone, probably hoping that nobody would see her at all, slinking in and just slinking out that morning. Jesus sees her very shabby clothes, kind of just patchwork, Let everybody know he knew she's a very poor woman. And this poor widow gives her offering, and it's just two small copper coins. Those were, in fact, the smallest coins in circulation in Palestine. Her two coins that she gave, that was enough for her to buy three grapes which was all that she had to live on. That's all that she would have for that day. It'd be like this, right here. Now you can, you're like squinting, what, what is that? That's exactly the point, you can hardly see it. But thanks to Ken, which Ken, I'm gonna give this back to you right after. This is essentially what it was. That's how small it was, nondescript. Everybody thought it, it's, it's just useless. But she gave out of that. And when she gave those two small coins, the equivalent of three grapes, nobody heard that. It didn't make any sound coming through the shofar trumpets. In fact, the scribes who were there in the temple were probably wondering, what is she doing here? Is she here just for a handout? Does she just want food? Is there just some money that we're supposed to give her? Can you move along? But not Jesus. (laughs) Not Jesus. Jesus says there's something very godly about that woman. Jesus is actually impressed by her. Jesus says there's something praiseworthy about her offering. Jesus tells his disciples that, in fact, this poor widow has given even more than anyone else there that day. Why? Because Jesus says that this poor widow gave out of her poverty, and she gave everything she had to live on. Church, in the wider context of Mark chapter 12, as we've been learning here, Jesus is saying that this poor widow got it right. That this poor widow is actually living the Shema. She's loving God out of all that she has, out of who she is. And it's this poor widow 
who's actually more godly than she seems. She's more obedient than she looks. She's more holy than I'm sure she thinks of herself. I mean, is there anything better than this poor widow who is loving God and loving her neighbor with such incredible sacrifice? I mean, that, brothers and sisters, is, is generosity. That's, that's true generosity. Generosity, not how the world defines it, and frankly, generosity, not how many religious people would think about it. Jesus says that generosity is not measured by the amount of the gift, but it's actually measured by the cost to the giver. And this widow gave everything she had to live on. Jesus notices her, commends her, because Jesus is not looking at the size of the gift. He's not attuned to the noise that it might make. You know what Jesus is looking at? Her heart. Jesus sees the heart of this widow. And he sees our hearts as well. First Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So what can seem little and unnoticeable and even insignificant in the eyes of man is very big in God's eyes. And a large offering that might impress many people that may not impress God at all. And a very small offering that others might even scoff at, well, that attracts the attention and the applause of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, some of you might be thinking, you know, I, I wish I could give like that. I'd like to give like that. What an incredible example, this poor widow. But I don't think, I don't think I can be as generous as she was. You know what's so great about the gospel? You know what's so great about when we begin to receive the gospel of God's grace and God begins slowly but yes, surely over time to change us and to work in our hearts by the power of his Holy Spirit? You know what happens? Our hearts grow. They get bigger. So really, by definition, a Christian, a disciple of Jesus is, is a man, woman, boy, and girl who has an enlarged heart, walks around with an enlarged heart every single day. You all have enlarged hearts, and it's not going to kill you. It's how you actually live. Praise God. Because when you have an enlarged heart, you begin to care about others' needs more than your own. When you have an enlarged heart, you actually begin to see that everything that you have been given, gifts, talents, monies, abilities, that's a gift from God. And yes, he then requires you to shepherd that, to use that, to steward that wisely. So every Christian, every disciple of Jesus can actually be generous. Whether you're single, whether you're a widow, whether you're a college student, whether you're in a different season of life. By, by God's grace, every single person here can actually be generous according to the definition that Jesus gives, because Jesus is not looking at the size of the gift. He's looking at the heart of the giver. He's not looking at surplus. 
He's looking at sacrifice. He knows that many give out of their abundance, but isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't hold that up as the supreme example? Not at all. Jesus says, no, no, my example of generosity is this poor widow. Because Jesus says she gave everything she had. She's my example. So however large or little, great or small, we are to, like this widow, we're to give in such a way that it actually costs us something. That, it, that there's probably some pain. At the very least, some discomfort. We, we feel it, in other words. Now, there are many, many sacrificial, generous people. I'm, I'm staring at you right now. Praise God. Your giving, your generosity, particularly to this local church, allows us to, to be in this kind of building, to support church plants, to enjoy the spread of the gospel, to, to be part of that worldwide, to, to build up and edify believers and to do the things we do around this place. Praise God. May that continue. But we do also need to do a little bit of heart work here. And so as we continue to grow in this, this kind of sacrificial giving means that we we do need to think carefully about that next home improvement project. Maybe we need to just wait on that. And I'm not talking about like the roof just caved in. But maybe we can wait a little bit on that refrigerator. Maybe we need to wait a little bit so that we can give generously. Maybe we need to delay a, a vacation Maybe not, but it's worthy to think through because gospel-centered, grace-centered, grace-filled giving really does cost. So we count the cost and we give generously, yes, of our money, of our time, of our gifts and our abilities. But you know why we do that? And this is key. Motivation is, is everything. We do that not to earn favor from God and certainly not so that we can impress those around us. But we do that because in the gospel, we already have God's favor. He's already blessed us. This is our response to him. And so this poor widow holds nothing back from God. She gives everything that she has. And Jesus here is trying to get his disciples' attention. And he's teaching them about what he is going to do for them. And what will Jesus do? In just a matter of hours, he will hold nothing back. He will give up his own life on the cross. He will die, not for his sins, but to reconcile sinful, dare I say it again, greasy people, all of us, so that we might be saved. Nobody will ever give anything greater than the gift of God's own Son, our Savior. He gives us all he has. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme. Paul's just overflowing here with gratitude and as he thinks about the generosity of the gospel and the generosity of God and his grace. This is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Is grace free? Yes. But somebody needs to pay. And it's not going to be us. 
because we have a debt of sin that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. We could never possibly repay that debt. And the grace of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus became poor so that he could repay the cost of all of your sins. And he did that. He paid the cost of your sins and mine on the cross, and he did it because of his great love for you. So, yes, in one sense, grace is free. But in another sense, gospel grace is not free. It cost Jesus his life. And he willingly, and the writer of Hebrews says, joyfully paid that cost for every person here. That's the sacrifice that Jesus willingly makes. And as Mark shows us here in his Gospels, or in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus pays the cost for scribes. He pays the cost for hypocrites. He pays the cost for the spiritually ignorant. He pays the cost for adulterers. He pays the cost for the greedy, for the arrogant, for the very religious, for poor widows. He pays it for all of us. So how can I truly follow the one who is meek and lowly and humble if I'm arrogant and proud? And how can we say we really do love God and we love our neighbor if we continue to withhold from God? Whatever it may be, our money, our schedules, our phones, our families, a relationship, a leisure activity, whatever it may be. Really, the question is, how can, how can our lives more closely resemble this poor widow who was, who was way more godly than it seemed? Let's pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you in need, every last one of us here. And Lord, I pray that you would meet us in our need, Lord. Lord, we, we, want, we want to grow. We don't want to be like scribes, fakes, frauds. But we, we feel the tension and we know the tendency. So God, forgive us. By your grace, melt our hard hearts. Give us your sufficient grace this day and this week that maybe even in small, maybe even in imperceptible ways, at least to us, that we might conduct ourselves like this poor widow. Thank you for her. Thank you for her example. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.